following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Anyway, if you've got a Bible, turn with me. We are in um, Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We are in verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed a money lender, owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's the word of the Lord this morning. Uh, my wife and I, we really um, love to have people over for a meal. We always sign up for those dinners for eight without fail. I think there's scarcely been a year we haven't done it. And you know, we love getting to know people, and we find if you have a meal with people, that's kind of the best way to do that. So I chose to preach on this passage today because it combines my love of food, my love of meals, and a seriously awkward situation. Uh, if you've ever seen that TV show, Come Dine With Me, and thought, mm, that's a little bit awkward, having dinner with four complete strangers, this passage is going to top that by a country mile. Imagine for a minute you're having a dinner party at your place, and an uninvited stranger turns up at your door, lets themselves in, is crying to start with, and then starts weeping at the feet of one of your guests. I cannot think of anything more awkward happening at a dinner party than that. Except then that it does get more awkward. Uh, It's not just the kind of crying that you might have, a baby crying, but this is intense weeping at the guest's feet. Imagine that it was the person was weeping so much that they started to wet their feet with their tears. I mean, that's just intense. Then they let their hair down, start to wipe the feet, wipe the tears away, start pouring perfume on the feet, eh? Start kissing the feet. Oh, good Lord, what's going on here? This thing makes come dine with me look absolutely tame. 
I think when I, when I read this passage, when you, if you take it at face value, it's just weird. It's so removed from the way we do things today. It's kind of hard to relate to what's going on there. So what I want to do today is just unpack this passage and try and make some sense of it and what it might mean for us. First thing to note is that mealtimes were really significant occasions in the ancient world. If you were invited over for a meal, that was pretty significant too. People were always trying to invite the right people over to their place. People who would make them look good. Uh, people who increased their social standing. If you needed to secure support for a business venture, you invited the right people over. If you needed a political favor or some strong arming that way, you invited the right people. And the Pharisees were no exception to this rule. Even though they were a really strict sect of Judaism, really conservative when it came to keeping the law, they were just as image conscious as the next person. Jesus says in Luke 11, the Pharisees loved the best seats in the synagogues and they loved respectful greetings in the marketplaces. It sounds like someone really image conscious to me. So it's not that curious that you've got a Pharisee inviting Jesus over to his house. I mean, if Jesus really turned out to be a prophet like Simon thought, whoa, hey man, live prophet at my house, wow. Suddenly his social standing would be increased astronomically. Now, the meal is probably held in Simon's backyard for two reasons. First, if things went horribly wrong and Jesus turned out to be some huckster, Simon could pull the story, oh, well, he just turned up unannounced. I did the best I could. I, you know, I just shuffled him into the backyard there. Um, and it explains how he didn't show any Jesus any of the normal hospitalities you would an honored guest. It also explains how a sinful woman could get access to a Pharisee's house. Now, Pharisees kept themselves separate from people who were sinners. Because if they had made contact with a sinful person, it made them ritually unclean. So that means sinful people were certainly not welcome within the four walls of their house. And his yard was probably easily accessible from the street. People could come in and go quite easily. He might have even been having the, the, the lunch in a shared courtyard. The last bit of context I want to make about this is people eat, ate meals very differently to the way we do today. They, don't sit at, they didn't sit at tables and chairs um, like, they, like we do today. They reclined on a thing called a, a, a triclinium. If you try and imagine this, it's like a, a three-sided rectangular couch that you lie down on and your feet are at one end um, and there's a bit of an opening at the other end for servants to come in and bring food. So just to be clear here, the woman in the story, she's not scuffling under the table like a dog clamoring at someone's feet. Jesus' feet are probably really easily accessible here. Okay, so Simon, he is really interested to see if this Jesus guy is a prophet or not. That's the thing that's first on his mind because his response to seeing the woman touch Jesus is, he can't be a prophet. I mean, if he were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. That this woman is a sinner. See, prophets were supposed to be clairvoyant, be able to see the future, be able to read people's thoughts and know who people really were. And if Jesus doesn't know that this is a sinful woman touching him, well, then he really can't be a prophet. Now, Simon would have had a lot of respect for Jesus if he turned around to the woman and said, get your hands off me. You're making me unclean. Don't touch me. Because that's just how Simon read the law. It was black and white. There were righteous people like him and there were sinful people like her. And it was his job 
to keep the sinners out of Israel and excluded from the community. And can you really blame him for that? Because, you know, hadn't Israel gone into exile previously because they tolerated sin within their community? How many verses in Deuteronomy command the Israelites to purge the evil from amongst themselves? Didn't the coming kingdom depend on Israel being faithful to the law? Wasn't Simon doing the right thing? The irony here of of Simon's understanding and reading of the law is that he's now sitting in judgment of Jesus. And I think you've got to be a little bit careful if that's how you read the law. Okay, so up until this point in the story, Simon hasn't said a thing. He hasn't said anything to Jesus. He's just been thinking these things in his head. Guess what? Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. Maybe he is a prophet. Now, if, if I suddenly got wind that someone was judging me like this, I know what my reaction would be. I'd probably turn around and lecture them and argue with them and call them all sorts of things and tell them why they had a really bad attitude. But Jesus took a different approach here. He told Simon a story. He said to him, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Two debtors owed a money lender some money. One 50 denarii, the other 500. Now put that in context. If you owe somebody uh, one denarii, you owe them a whole day's wages. So if you owe them 500 denarii, you owe them nearly two years worth of your wages. That's a lot of money to owe, especially in the ancient world because your day's wages basically bought you and your family enough food to eat for that day. So it's almost like an impossible debt. Even 50 denarii is pretty sizable. Now the sum of money owed isn't really the issue because both debtors in the story are actually in exactly the same position. Neither of them had the money to pay the lender back. And Jesus says in, in Luke 12, kind of casually, uh, you know, plead with your, your adversary. He may take you off to the, the judge and the judge throw you in jail and you won't get out until you pay the last penny. And that's very common what happened to people who couldn't pay their debts in the ancient world? Ended up in jail. So you've got two debtors who owe impossible amounts of money, completely unable to pay, facing some serious jail time. And then you get this really strange twist in the story. So the lender just forgave them both. Hey, eh? He did what? He just forgave them? <laughs> Is he nuts? I mean, that's, that's like your bank manager calling you up and saying, hey, Grant, um, you know that mortgage you got on that property there? Don't worry about it. It's all good. It's done. I paid it for you. Man, I'm hanging out for all that phone call. Woo. Okay. How would you feel? I'd be dancing. I'd probably be saying to them, is this, is this a joke? Come on, to some sort of prank. I'd get in my car. I'd drive to the bank itself and actually want to see it with my own eyes on their screen. It's all paid. It's done. I guess that bank manager become my next best friend. I'd probably kiss his feet. I'm sure I would. <laughs> Going to get a lot of love from me, that bank manager. The one who'd been forgiven more loves more. The one forgiven little loves little. Interesting um, choice of words from Jesus there. There's a, real, there's a double meaning in this passage that I think we'll miss from the English. The word in Aramaic for debt, exactly the same word for sin. We've got two words in English. We've got sin, we've got debt. They mean different things. In Aramaic, they're used interchangeably, exactly the same words. Oh, well, maybe Jesus is a prophet, thinks Simon. He certainly knows this woman's a sinner. Oh, I get it, okay. 
certainly knew what I was thinking. Okay, so after telling the story, after challenging Simon's way of thinking, after firing his imagination a little bit, he brought it into sharp focus for him personally. Simon, you've invited me over for a meal. You know the normal customs. You show reverence and respect for guests by at the very least having one of your servants wash their feet. Come on, Simon, you know Palestine's a dusty, dirty place. Feet get dirty, but you haven't even offered to wash my feet. You haven't greeted me with a kiss like you would any normal, honored, reverenced guest. But this woman, she's come in and hasn't stopped kissing my feet, my dirty, unwashed feet. You didn't pour any oil on my head to show that you saw me as a really great and honored guest. But this woman has anointed my feet with perfume. I think Jesus is saying to Simon, Simon, I know you've invited me over to check me out. You've done it really carefully just to make sure that your social standing wouldn't be affected by me coming over. But this woman, Simon, she sought me out at great expense to her personal reputation, to her pride, to her dignity. She's come to your house uninvited, despite knowing that she would be publicly recognized and shamed for doing so. It's like Jesus is saying to Simon, if you're really as righteous as you think you are, where's your love for me? And to the woman, Jesus turned and said, your sins are forgiven. Did you notice that this woman, uh, she doesn't have a name in the story. She's completely unnamed. Did you notice as soon as she appeared on the scene, that Simon knew exactly who she was? Interesting. She wasn't known by her name. She was known by her sins. Can you imagine what that felt like to live under that kind of judgment day in, day out? I think it's, it's quite purposeful then that Luke hasn't gone around and said, well, here's what she did to earn that title, earn that name. I think that's deliberate because it's not the point of the story. She knew she had a past. Oh boy, did she know it. She knew she had a whole lot of skeletons in her closet. She knew that when Jesus told that story about the one who owed the big debt, she said, that's me. I'm the one. I know. I recognize myself in this story. I'm the one who owes an impossibly huge amount to this lender. She got it. Did Simon. Did Simon get that he was also a debtor to the same lender? Because that's why Jesus told the story. He wanted to draw Simon in. He wanted to challenge his way of thinking. It's really easy for us today, culturally, to paint the story as Simon is this cold religious hypocrite because we don't like people like that. And we want to paint this woman as, a, as a, an, a, an oppressed hero, really, a champion. But that's not really the story being told here. That's the story we tell in our culture today. The same lender forgave both. Simon was a debtor just like the woman. He may have owed less. He may not have been such a flagrant sinner. He may not have had a sordid past but he was in exactly the same position as her. He was a debtor without the means to repay his debt. And given that, was he really any different from the woman? Now, I know when we want to think about what a passage like this might mean for us, we're quite tempted to say, well, are you behaving more like Simon or like the woman uh, in, in your life right now? 
And there's times when you read scripture that that's not a bad thing to do. It's just not the point of this passage. I wouldn't really recommend either of them as role models for behavior either. Um, and I think it's probably, it, you know, if, if we're honest, it's not an either or choice for us. I know that there are times in my own life when I've done horrible things to other people and I've sinned overtly. I know there's times where I become quite cold and hypocritical um, and, and, and forget that I'm saved by grace. And I think if we're honest, we could probably find ourselves at either end of that spectrum at any point in our lives. I'm sure we could all tell stories of either side as well. The question the guests ask at the end of the passage is the question we are faced with today. Who is this who forgives even sins? In other words, who on earth is this Jesus before us right now? The story isn't about who's the greatest sinner or who's more righteous. The point is given that we're all sinners with debts to God, we are unable to pay. What's your response to Jesus? What is your response to the lender who's forgiven your debt? Doesn't matter how big or small your sins are. What have you done with Jesus? How have you responded to him? Do you see your need for him? Do you see yourself as a sinner before a holy God in need of forgiveness? Do you recognize that Jesus is your only hope to be forgiven, to be made new, to be brought into fellowship with, you, with God? Who is Jesus to you? What is your response to Jesus? You see, I don't think it matters whether you lean more towards Simon or more towards the woman in your life right now. I think the biggest application we can take from this passage straight away is grace, pure and simple, because that is exactly what Simon and the woman have been shown. Neither of them deserved forgiveness. Both of them were unable to pay and have had their debts cancelled. The, debtor the debtors in the story, they legitimately owed the lender money. And he was well within his rights to demand every single penny owed to him. And if they couldn't pay, they should be thrown in jail because that's the law. But the lender didn't. He forgave them both an act of pure grace and mercy. Neither of them deserved it. Jesus doesn't say, well, I mean, okay, fine, these guys, both of these guys who owed money were really upstanding citizens who did really great things for their country and you know, they obeyed all the laws of the road and you know, didn't cut anybody off or didn't speed or anything like that. They were really good people, so I think we should forgive their debts. Didn't matter how nice they were or how bad they were, they both owed something. Now, this story isn't actually about the debtors. It's all about the lender. He's the gracious one. He's the one who's taken it on himself. There was a, um, was a journalist who lived in the 1700s by the name of Heinrich Hein, German guy. And uh, he had a priest attend him on his deathbed. And he's, he's kind of famous for this quote. It's kind of the only thing I think people remember about him. Um, the priest asked him, he said, do you think God will forgive you your sins? And in you know, a really quick quip back to the priest, he said, of course, God will forgive me. That's his job. Now that is a really interesting view of what you think God is and, and, and God's obligation towards it. It's almost like saying God's obligated to forgive me. He's not doing his job if he doesn't. And I think you know, culturally today, we probably look at God the same way. We probably think God, owes me forgiveness you know, God would be cruel to say to someone like the woman in the story sorry I'm not going to forgive you 
Come on, she's so sorry, she's so contrite, she clearly deserves to be forgiven. The trouble is God is in no way, shape or form obligated to offer us anything. He's like the lender in the story. And you know, the woman, I think she knew she didn't deserve to be forgiven. I think that's why she stuck to Jesus' feet. She stuck to the lowest part of him. She was saying, look, I know I'm not even worthy to look at you face to face, Jesus. I am the lowest of the low. I deserve absolutely nothing, but I'm desperate for you and your mercy. If you think God owes you anything and you want God to give you what you do, well then what God is going to give you is judgment against your sin. God is a just and a holy God. He cannot tolerate evil and he will not tolerate sin. For God to be just and good, he must punish evil and sin. Any God that overlooks evil and turns a blind eye is neither just nor good. That's the reality of the God we serve. Now, I'm using two words here, sin and grace, but I think sometimes today these words have kind of lost a lot of meaning. They don't mean as much as they used to anymore. We live in a world, I think, that is, that is really trying to erase any idea that there is sin in the world. Uh, we go to great lengths to explain people's behavior apart from sin. We just say people are sick, they're hurt, they're disenfranchised, they're uneducated, they're trapped in poverty, fighting for freedom, fighting for rights. We can make a whole list of excuses before we're willing to call anybody sinful. And it seems that the worst thing you can do today is actually say somebody is sinful because that would ruin their self-esteem. It would stop people being happy. It would you know, ruin their life to be, be told that they're bad. And we live in a, I think we live in a really therapeutic culture that's very uncomfortable with anything that could potentially make us unhappy. I want to be clear here, I love to be happy. I'm a pretty happy guy. Um, there's nothing wrong with being happy, but it's just, in reality, it's not going to be your experience of following Jesus every day. You're going to be happy some days, other days you're not. I think we need a way more robust theology than what the world will give us. The trouble is, if you start erasing this idea that there is sin or people can be sinful, the first thing to go as a real unintended consequence, or intended for that matter, is the cross itself becomes meaningless. I was looking over for it and couldn't see it. It's over there. The cross becomes absolutely meaningless if sin doesn't exist because Jesus went to the cross for my sin and for your sin in the first place and for the sin of the world. If sin doesn't exist, how do you make sense of the cross? It's no wonder some people in our culture think of God as some kind of depraved maniac for sending Jesus to die in our place. It's not because they think that that's an, an abhorrent idea. It's because they can't see people as sinful. If you take sin out of the equation, the cross is completely meaningless and God is a maniac. And sometimes, you know, like I find this thinking, it permeates Christian thinking, probably not to that level, not as crazy as that. Um, but, you know, you often find Christians saying things like, well, I can't find a single verse in the Bible telling me to identify as a sinner. And I think that's, that's kind of a half-truth at best. Um, it's kind of like, you know, you, you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible. That doesn't mean the Trinity isn't a biblical doctrine. Um, you know, I know as Christians we're saved. We are sons and daughters of God. We are under grace. We are in Christ. We are new creations, as Paul says. But we are all that by grace. Not by, by effort, not by anything of virtue within us. 
Not because we're somehow wonderful people who deserved all of those nice things. We are that by grace. If you follow that line of thinking too, sometimes it's, it's really then hard to make any sense of your normal Christian life because if you're anything like me, I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you half an hour to be generous between the time the service ends and the time you get home to say you may not sin, but I guarantee you, you, you know, if you're anything like me, you're probably sinning on the way home from church, thinking some really horrible thoughts. You might say some horrible things to people. You might make some horrible gestures out the window to a passerby or who cuts you off. We sin constantly. We sin daily. How do you make sense of your daily life? Are they just mistakes? Are they just bad choices? Oh, I probably don't really need to ask forgiveness for those things. I'm fine. I'm all good. Are they nothing serious? I think the more we think down that line, the more we start to play right into a secular mindset that's trying to eradicate any idea of sin. The next thing that happens from that is you really quickly miss how radical and amazing God's grace is. You can't see grace for what it is if you don't first recognize the depth and depravity of sin. Just what an affront and what an offense it is to a holy God. And when you come to grasp that, wow, it's, it's amazing how, how great grace really is. Another thing I think we do as Christians is we, we prize um, stories and testimonies of people who, who have been saved from the most uh, amazing of circumstances. Uh, serious drug addicts, people who have lived um, as prostitutes, people who have done all sorts of terrible things in life. Um, and, and we love to hear those stories of, of how they've come to Christ. And they're great stories. We prize them well over people who've just maybe lived in a normal home, a really high, highly moral background, or have just grown up in a Christian home and have come to faith. And I think we do that because we rank sins in terms of what we think is the most severe to what is pretty benign. We think some are worse than others in God's eyes. And I've, I've heard a lot of dramatic um, conversion stories. I mean, I've known some people that have had some truly horrendous backgrounds. You know, one guy I used to know was a former drug addict and, and Satanist. Um, and he used to do all sorts of horrible things. And, and wow, what a story he had. It was an amazing story. And, and we used, used to get him in a room and tell other people um, his story. And they would just be in raptures, you know. But... Um, but they're not the only thing that's dramatic. I actually think every conversion story is dramatic. Whether you are uh, you know, saved from that kind of stuff or whether you are just a, a, a highly moral person who's come to Christ from a Christian home. Because every conversion is a debtor being forgiven a debt they cannot possibly repay. What could be more dramatic than that? I wonder if we've missed the cleverness of Jesus' question here or, or Jesus' statement by ranking sins because if both debtors were unable to pay, then the amount forgiven isn't what caused them to love the lender. I'll say that again. If the amount forgiven doesn't actually... Uh, say if both debtors were unable to pay, the amount forgiven isn't what caused the debtors to love the lender differently. It really just comes down to each debtor's perception of what they owed. Put another way, it's how seriously each debtor viewed the debt they owed to the lender. The one who owed 50 denarii probably thought, I'm, I'm all good, it's okay, I can manage this, I'm fine on my own. 
kind of in denial, I think. I think the real question from the story, and, and to come back to grace, is, is given the sinfulness of all humanity, and you could probably argue that both this, this woman in the story and Simon probably represent most of humanity between people who are flagrant sinners and people who are um, highly moral and self-righteous. Given the sinfulness of humanity, why does God save anyone at all? If Simon and the woman were both sinners, why did Jesus even bother to offer forgiveness to either of them? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, says John. God's love for his world and for us, his people drove, us, drove him to give us everything while we were his enemies. God is love. It's who he is. Everything that God is and does is because he is love. Jesus forgave the woman because he loved her. She didn't deserve to be forgiven. She's not a hero to be admired. She was a sinful woman who had most likely lived a terribly immoral life. Yet he loved her and forgave her. He canceled her debt like the lender in the story. She wasn't on her way to jail anymore. She was free and her response was one of joy, albeit tears of joy and thanksgiving. Her response was love, the same love Simon should have shown Jesus through good hospitality had he realized he was in exactly the same position as the woman. As I close, I just want you to think about uh, the Oxford English Dictionary. Picture it in your mind right now. It's a big fat book. It's a horrible book. I had one all through school that I think just was compulsory to have and it sat in my desk for years. Never used it. I have no idea who wrote that thing. No idea who contributed to it. But I found out the other day that there's one person above anyone else who's made more contributions to that book than, any, than anyone in history. A person by the name of Marganita Lasky. Anybody know them? Didn't think so. Um, she has actually, um, in her lifetime, submitted 250,000 quotations to that book. Unbelievable. Who cares? All right, now she was born in England, uh, born to a Jewish family. Uh, became a, uh, she was really well educated, became a novelist, a playwright. She wrote for newspapers, appeared on BBC radio and TV. Um, you know, she was quite a prolific writer, a really creative person, uh, worked really hard. Did a little proud, had a lot of stuff to be proud of. Uh, she was also an avowed atheist who routinely criticized Christians for their belief in a supremely powerful God. Yet before her death in 1988, she went on TV and had an interview. Um, and she made a really startling comment in that interview. She said, um, you know, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. And doesn't that just make your heart sink? Get to the end of your life and say, I have nobody to forgive me. And I want to take someone like that and shake him by the shoulders and say, yes, you do. You do. He's in the story. His name's Jesus. Come on. Oh. I think we've heard a message like this so often we've just missed how, how radical um, the idea of forgiveness for sins really is. Um, I think too often we've, we've heard it preached as, as a message about moralism, about how you manage your sin, instead of it actually being good news, because that's what it was to Simon and the woman. Well, jury's out on Simon. And don't worry if you're concerned. Look, Jesus wasn't going soft on sin, all right? He still called a spade a spade. Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, not which are, there, there, you're not really a sinner. Here's some tea and blankets. 
Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. See, the trouble is, if you preach a sermon on moralism and how you can tame sin through willpower alone, you're preaching something other than the gospel because the only way to manage your sin is to run into the arms of Jesus, cling to him, and throw yourself on his mercy. There is no other way. If that doesn't do it, nothing will. People like Marganita Lasky, she accomplished some great things and she had a lot to be proud of, but none of that changed the fact that she was a sinner in need of forgiveness. And that is exactly the same for us today. It is as true back then, as true today as it was back then. No matter how much money we got in the bank, no matter how much we accomplish in business, no matter how many creative and artistic things we do, how much good we do for society as a whole, they're all wonderful things, but they do not change fundamentally what we are. Your sins actually cannot be forgiven anywhere else except through Christ. And that's what makes this idea so radical. The the woman in the story, she realized this. She sought Jesus out. The jury's out on Simon. The text is ambiguous as to whether he saw his need or not. We don't know. Do you see your need for Christ and his mercy today? If you are like the woman and you've, you've led a life that you're quite ashamed of, I want to encourage you, do not run from Jesus. Uh, he is so much bigger than your sin. And there is nothing you have done or will ever do that he can't or won't forgive. There is nothing. Where sin abounded, Paul says, grace superabounded. I encourage you to seek Jesus regardless of the cost and you will find new life in abundance. To so the person who may be upright and moral, You may have done really wonderful things. You might have been a really nice person. But let us not mistake being nice and moral for holiness. If you expect good morality to be enough, you might as well expect your Toyota to turn into a Ferrari by following the speed limit. It ain't going to happen. Jesus gently reminds us that we all stand before him in exactly the same position as the one who sinned greatly. We're all sinners in need of a saviour. And I thank the Lord, hallelujah, that he forgives us and he loves us and in Christ has shown us great grace and mercy. Shall we pray? Father God, I want to thank you for your your never-ending, ceaseless, flowing grace towards us. Lord, there is nothing we can do to exhaust the power of your grace. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and followed our own way. There is none of us who seeks you here. We all seek you at your initiative and prompting in our hearts. I want to thank you. There is nothing we could ever do to ever, that we would never be snatched out of your hand. You hold us firm and secure. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts of us and you would open our eyes to the depths of our own depravity. Not to put us down or shame us. Not to turn us into morbid Um, depressed people but to make your grace appear all the more wonderful and amazing that we would run and cling to you and fall down at your feet and cry out for your mercy Lord we thank you that in Jesus you have shown us more grace and mercy than we can ever understand we thank you for that Lord Jesus in your name we pray Amen this has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. 
Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.